0: Hello, welcome to Let the Stones Speak. This is a podcast where we bring to you the latest in biblical archaeology from here in Jerusalem. This podcast is also in print form. This comes out with a magazine entitled Let the Stones Speak. It comes out six times per year. It's available for you uh, to you for free wherever you are in the world. If you want to request this magazine, which will form much of the content of this podcast, you can do so by writing emails to letters at armstrongmazar.com. This podcast and also the magazine are part of the publications and the media of the Armstrong Mazar Institute of Biblical Archaeology. This is a brand new biblical archaeology institute started here in Jerusalem. Of course, our history involved in excavation and publication and research and and sponsorship of excavations goes back for over 50 years here in Jerusalem, and we have finally decided to start this uh, new institute so that we can really bring the discoveries of biblical Jerusalem all the way to the general public we're going to take it out of the realm with this podcast and also the magazine out of the realm of of academia and into uh, the realm of a popular audience without as as our aim is to not sacrifice any type of scientific quality or accuracy in the process for today's podcast we're going to be talking with archaeologist Christopher Eames about a new article he wrote uh, for the first edition of let the stone speak so please stay with us and enjoy the show So Chris, thanks for coming on the show once again.
1: Not a problem. Glad to be here.
0: So we're going to be talking about your article that is in the first edition of Let the Stones Speak. A really interesting way of looking at the kingdoms of of, uh, David and Solomon, particularly Solomon. And your article is entitled Rethinking the Search for King Solomon. And it's quipped this way. Are we using the right metrics to judge the United Monarchy? So first of all, perhaps you can give us a little bit of background uh, as to the the debate uh, in archaeological circles about uh, this period of David and Solomon, and then w- what what you're kind of uh, introducing here is another way of 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 um, relating to that time period based on the archaeological evidence.
1: Sure thing. Well, the uh, for those who have followed biblical archaeology for any length of time, you'll know that the uh, the debate surrounding the significance of David and Solomon's kingdom is like one of the great debates, one of the greatest uh, debates, just how significant were they? Was it, as the Bible says, uh, this splendid uh, kingdom full of riches, gold, silver, etc.? Um, or was it more of a, a minor kingdom that were, that's that been kind of trumped up by this, by later biblical writers who are seeking to kind of uh, elevate David and Solomon more than they, more than they were? Now, as a side, one of the things that I think is really remarkable about this debate is where we are in this debate right now. Because it wasn't that long ago the debate was whether or not King David and Solomon existed at all. Now that was pretty much put to rest in 1993 with the discovery of the Tel Dan Stealer primarily um, attesting to the royal house of David. So. So now it's kind of moved into, well, how significant was 10th century BCE Israel, this time period, this real kind of century block time period in which King David and King Solomon existed? Was it as the Bible says, or was it more as as is popularly led by Professor Finkelstein, other types like that? Was it more of a minor tribal kind of tribal chieftain situation in the highlands, maybe Uh, I think they've speculated the number could have been 5,000 people in the whole of southern Judah uh, occupying that area in kind of scattered clusters. Was it more of a decentralized uh, situation like that? So that's the big debate uh, as it stands. And going into this first issue of Let the Stones Speak, I mean, we, we spend a lot of time on King David and Solomon in the past. We've written quite a lot of articles on them uh that they're, they're quite a central part obviously of the Bible story so we thought it would be great to have something connected to that in the very first issue but really the 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 impetus for this article for me um, came in a completely different way came quite by chance you could say uh, I was listening to a lecture recently um, and the and the the person giving the lecture, he was quoting from a book that he was reading by Rodney Stark called How the West Won, mm-hmm. and what what it, it's a fantastic book, a book that I hadn't to that point read. Uh, but what this book establishes is a lot of the kind of false narratives that have built up about our our ideas of the past and how we we have got to today. Quite a quite a rich western civilization and where did that come from all Mm -hmm. of this kind of individuality all of this individual personal wealth and some of the passages that were brought up in that book were really interesting and got me thinking that that wow this is this is actually what we're seeing right number one in the bible what the bible says of this time period of david and solomon and uh, this is what archaeology is showing as well. And perhaps,
0: so- perhaps you could just talk about, I guess, what you know, the, you say in the, in the very beginning that maybe we need to look at different metrics to judge the accuracy of the biblical account for David and Solomon. And the way that people have gone about that uh, almost exclusively would be the presence of big structures, from the 10th century throughout Israel and in Jerusalem. And that is kind of the only metric that people uh, people use to, to, to determine whether the, the Bible is accurate in this case.
1: Right. Monumentalism is another good word for it. Uh, really this kind of obsession with large, massive structures. Okay, We look at ancient Egypt and we think that must have been incredible, wealthy, powerful empire, to build these big pyramids, to build these big structures. You go across to the Mesopotamian areas, ziggurats, Babylon, massive structures. I think Nebuchadnezzar's ziggurat, uh, floor plan of 300 by 300 feet, uh, nearly 100 by 100 meters. Uh, mm-hmm. You go across to China, you've got the massive Forbidden City, Great Wall of China. So these are kind of the this is kind of the modern bias we have in a way for judging the power and might of ancient empires. Now, I wonder
0: if I could just jump in here. There's something you bring out towards the end of your piece, you compare it to some place in Eastern Europe right. uh compared to the United States as it exists today in terms of the power that each of them have and how we could judge that if and what happens if we judge that solely on monumental structures
1: right yeah the example i bring out is with romania so um romania has fascinatingly i I kind of discovered this recently as well they have the heaviest uh administration building anywhere in the world it's called the palace of the president or something to that effect the name has changed since it has uh has left the communist leadership uh but it is the heaviest most expensive, second most expansive, uh, expensive and expansive uh, administration building anywhere in the world. If you look up pictures of it, uh, it looks incredible. It was uh, commissioned by the last communist dictator of Romania, Ceausescu. Um, and if you look at pictures of it, it looks crazy. It looks incredible. It looks massive, mm-hmm. like proper Ramsey's style stuff. Right, right. And even the pictures don't do it justice because a good portion of it is actually underground in several layers. The building is so big and heavy, it actually sinks a centimeter a every year into the ground. So when you think about mighty powers, I kind of set set up the uh, point in the article this way. What would archaeologists looking back to our time in the future think if they saw the ruins of something like this? Would they think, wow, Romania must have been one of the great... <laughs> empires of our day right but actually when you look at it today uh romania has the highest poverty rate in all of europe highest poverty rate and i go through some of the other stats in the article but but these stats actually represent an improvement on what romania was in the 1990s, under communist rule at the time that this building was finished. So really the point is made there in the article that, wait a second, we can, especially in our day and age, we can't really judge the wealth, the power, the, uh, the, the, the richness of a kingdom just based on big structures or based on the fact that it took a despot and a personality cult surrounding mm-hmm. him in order to create these structures um and that's really what rodney stark brings out in the first chapter of his book um really asking uh, or, or presenting the case that actually the empires of old of egypt of babylon were very poor mm-hmm. empires okay we have some big monuments but those monuments, for all intents and purposes, are worthless. They had no worth to the population. They were built on the backs of slaves in most cases. Uh, the, the vast majority of the population lived, uh, as, as one, of the, one of the people he quoted stated, they lived in a state of utter destitution, little better than their cattle and oxen. Right. Um, so is that the wealth that we right, should be seeking right, from right. King David and Solomon's kingdom monumentalism <clears throat> so of? so
0: if that's if that isn't the case and we have to look for more maybe you can get into some of those other metrics and you probably need to we do need to temper this debate and even you do so inside your article just with the fact <laughs> that we do see monumental structures from Solomon's time as well and I think more evidence is going to be surfacing and, and be published about that, especially in Jerusalem over the next uh, few months. And so we don't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater and say monumental is all wrong. We, don't, we shouldn't expect to find any type of big structures associated with David and Solomon, because as archaeologists, that is kind of one of the things that we have to try and reconstruct the past is the size of structures. Perhaps you can talk about some of those other metrics that we can judge ancient Israel in particular in relation to what the Bible describes that society as.
1: Sure. Well, uh, the the primary example I use for this article uh, is Timna and the excavations that have been going on there in Timna, uh, primarily directed by Professor uh, Erez Ben-Yosef. Um, really interesting discoveries that he's been making in Timna. And uh, there's a lot of additional points that could be made from other sites, Mm -hmm. but this this article can only be so long. Well,
0: maybe you can talk about a couple of these other points that you bring up. And I think we have these on the infographic too, inside the article. Maybe deal with them quickly and then we'll get to uh, Timna.
1: So when we think about what makes a wealthy society, okay, in our day and age, that would be education, that would be uh, a wealthy populace. Um, not a, necessarily just the elite. Not just the elite. It would be a, a well-running economy, um, market-driven economy, well-clothed populace, well-sheltered populace, well-laid-out uh, sort of cities, that, that type thing, well, well-constructed um, utensils, pottery, that, that type of thing. And that's really what we start to see from the 10th century forward. Like if you compare that time period to the prior, shall we say, judges era, that's Mm -hmm. the Iron One period, you really start to see a transformation in, for example, pottery and the way pottery is made and developed and specialized. And you really see an explosion in growth in these various avenues in the 10th century BC. So this is really what I get into in this article. What could have caused this? What kind of Mm -hmm. government could have caused this? Now, it goes without saying that in looking at the wealth of the populace, we can't really be looking for gold and silver and jewelry spread all over the place. Okay. Israel has been plundered numerous times over, just about unlike any other country on earth, Uh, (laughs) dug to its foundations in various periods looking for gold that's very annoying
0: when people kind of you know dispute with the bible in there and one of their big points is there's been no glorious golden this or golden that's been found from the 10th century um like as you say i mean historical record bible or outside talk about how every foreign invading country isn't going to destroy the building and leave the precious uh, jewels or gold they're going to take that with them and so yeah that's an absence of evidence there's what people are going to base that argument on
1: right so there are other avenues that we can look at, though, uh, other things that wouldn't necessarily be plundered but that still could speak to the richness of that society. So as a case in point, uh, I look at Timnah, but as you say, there are other things scattered throughout Israel, pottery, evidence from pottery, even the composition of pottery. You can start to see a transformation and a more uh, refined way of, bi- of, of, of uh, producing vessels, pottery vessels. You can see the layout of cities specifically in the 10th century BCE. Mm -hmm. You see the six chambered gates, the famous gates most famously discovered in Hatzor, Megiddo, Megiddo, Gezer, very similar gate in Jerusalem. These are all four cities described as being built by Solomon in, what is it, 1 Kings 9 verse 15, something to that effect, and we see an exact layout of gates. Really strong, uh, powerfully built gates, impressive gates, but not necessarily a gate that uh, that elevates a single city, at, such as Hazor, Gezer, or Megiddo. Okay, there's some evidence coming out that Jerusalem's gate was more impressive, as you'd expect from a capital city. But you really see evidence of urban planning. Mm-hmm not trying to make one city safer than another necessarily, but really a blueprint used across the kingdom.
0: Right, and we should mention that a lot of people would, well, some people would have tried to push the dating of these things uh, further into the ninth century, outside the 10th century. I think there'll be, again, more evidence that comes out on that, and so don't don't put all your eggs in one basket uh, for that. If you've read that this is from Ahab or Omri or something like that, uh, there's certainly a lot more evidence that can come out uh, involving carbon samples perhaps at Khatzor that might be taken here soon. So definitely something worth keeping our eyes on there. So we have, I guess you have the pottery, you have literacy, I think is another point. And then right. you then you mentioned the fact that you have these chain, uh, gates in, indicating a, a centralized government structure that does push out its engineers to construct a similar style gate. Again, these gates are amazing. They're, the width between the gates is within like half a centimeter or something like that with every single one, uh, which is phenomenal to right. think that they had that level of precision back then indicating a central planner. Maybe you can just jump to Timna and we could we can start talking about
1: that. Sure. And you do mention uh, literacy, and that's brought up in this article, Evidence of Literacy, in the 10th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with Timna, Timna is a really interesting case because it is a mining community just north of the Gulf of Aqaba. Excavations have been ongoing there for the past century. In the early 20th century, it was kind of sensationalized as, oh, well, this is the place of King Solomon's mines because Timna is specifically a massive copper mining industry, and copper is a primary uh, element that goes into bronze, a primary component that goes mm-hmm. into bronze, which the Bible informs was uh, was produced in mass quantity for Solomon and for Solomon's temple. So the early excavators, Nelson uh, Glueck, or however you pronounce his name, uh, they really pointed to this as the location of... Uh, the King Solomon's mines, mm-hmm. dating to the 10th century. Now, in later decades, there was some pushback to that, okay, the, you're getting into a time of really doubting the veracity of the, the biblical account of Solomon and David, did these guys even really exist? And what they found was some evidence from the 12th century BCE, okay, a couple of centuries later of egyptian presence in the area so this was a somewhat egyptian controlled Mm -hmm. area there was a large shrine there more shall we say monumental Mm -hmm. constructions in that respect and so the scientists pointed to the primary spike in copper production as coming from that time period now they knew that there was a massive spike in copper production sometime within these centuries initially it was put in the 10th century bce time period belonging to david and solomon but now this tried to revise it to well it must have been egyptian this must have been 12th century that we see this spike in copper production well thanks to the efforts of uh professor ben yosef and uh and the people that he has worked with that has been able to be confirmed and refined to a dating of the 10th century mm-hmm. BCE, just the highest spike in copper production that these mines have ever seen, and these mines have been in use for millennia. They've been proven to be in in use. They have massive slag heaps, uh, and and you can really date your way quite evenly through the layers. And so that was
0: from radiocarbon dating that he was able to, right?
1: Primarily, it was from radiocarbon dating that they were able to prove that that this that this chief amount of production was from the 10th century BCE. Mm -hmm. And actually the 12th century Egyptian controlled period, there was a drop-off in copper production. Mm -hmm. Something was going on there that caused a drop-off. And then you have a massive spike uh, during the 10th century. And then in the 9th century, uh, you have a drop-off again. And conveniently enough, that's It's at the end of the 10th and into the 9th century that you have Egypt moving into that territory once again. And so that poses the question, what kind of regional rulership was going on that allowed for such a spike? And not only a spike in the 10th century BCE, but there was evidence of refining of techniques Mm -hmm. in copper production. And I think you've written about this in the past. Uh, getting more, more refined in their techniques in, in mining this copper and different technological advancements during this period. And this is something that Rodney Stark wrote about, even to do with another example of a mining community in China.
0: I think we'll save that one for, for the people that read your article. Sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Lest we be here for three hours. Yep.
0: Um, but I, I think uh, it's really interesting because, you know, Erez Ben-Yosef comes along then and says, whoops, uh, this is dating to the 10th century, this in, increase in, in technology um, and the ability to refine the, the, the copper to, to a better extent. And, you know, he looks, he dares to look at the historical historical record of, of the source that talks about the 10th century, the Bible. And um, he's like, well, it kind of looks like exactly what we'd expect to find there in Timna.
1: Right. Uh, yeah, and exactly that's what 2 uh, Chronicles 18 talks about. Um, it talks about David conquering this area, the Edomites that lived in this area supporting david or providing mm-hmm. uh providing goods for david and it talks about david setting up garrisons in the area and so david the, this this period is about 1000 bce and they've that's exactly what they've found they've found remains of uh, garrisons shall we say mm-hmm. or fortifications that were set up exactly at this time period so it just makes sense to put the two and two together like that
0: so that's so that's the dating of it 10th century uh, what else did they find that, that follows on with your your paper?
1: Sure, they amongst these slag heaps, these are of course slag refuse heaps. They found a plethora of other discoveries, not just uh, just copper slag, mm-hmm. but they also found scraps of clothing. Now this got really interesting because the clothing during this 10th century period that they found was really beautiful weaves, beautiful dyes of clothing, orange, black, uh, blues, and reds. The Bible talks about the blues and the reds, the, the colors that were uh, commissioned by King Solomon. Really beautiful colors that beg the question, what are they doing in a mining community? Right. Like your Egyptian slaves, Egyptian people that would be sent to do this type of thing, at best they would be wearing a single color plain uh, uh, wraparound. Mm-hmm if not naked, they often had their slaves work naked. And here you've got this mining community where you've got remains of clothing of beautiful, more like Joseph's coat of many colors type clothing. Right. And then even more sensationally last year, uh, either last year or the year before they discovered purple, a Royal purple fabric, purple dyed fabric, the argamon color uh, that that's mentioned in the Bible. Now this is, the richest of the rich type fabric. Mm-hmm. This is the earliest example that's ever been found by a thousand years. It's mentioned in the Bible in the context of the temple, even even, um, and in the Roman times, uh, it it the the wealth of this the this Argamon dye was so precious it was worth. Uh, 10 to 20 times its weight in gold. I think in, on our last podcast, I gave you the wrong stat. I said about three times. It's actually more like 10 to 20 mm. times in, in certain settings, certain periods. So this was wealthy, wealthy fabric. And it begs the question, what is it doing in the middle of a desert, in the middle of a mining community during the 10th century BCE? What were these people wearing at, the, at this right. time? How rich <clears throat> must they have been? And these remains go beyond clothing. They found remains of food, uh, pomegranates, uh, olives, uh, various foods that could not have been grown in that area. They must have been grown around the Mediterranean somewhere. So these are imported, imported, rich, wealthy foods, wheat even. Uh, w- was among the list Ver- almonds, various foods that must have been imported and what I found was really interesting was that even the fish was imported okay, Timna is not that far from the Gulf of Aqaba, just to the south but these fish remains weren't from the. they were able to show that they weren't from the Gulf of Aq- Aqaba, they were from the Mediterranean Sea Right. even donkey manure that was found, so the donkeys were the primary pack animals during the 10th century BCE, they were able to examine the manure. They were able to determine that the feed that the donkeys ate was from the Jerusalem area. So what does this all point to? This is exactly fitting with the biblical picture in terms of the the use of of copper or bronze. But not only that, in terms of just the immense wealth that must have gone on to be able to have such a clothed community Number one to have such a fed community, even the pack animals, uh, and to have so you've
0: got all of these different uh, elements that are material remains from the time of the 10th century imported uh, from the Medita- Mediterranean region or at least further to the north. Uh, it looks to match the biblical description of what you know Solomon was doing there, getting his, uh, he would at least be an involved down there because that's the main copper mining facility, as you say. So what are, what are those physical details? What are those details, you know, the, all of what you've described in Timnah, say about the population itself? Let's get back to this, this thought about the different metrics in which to judge Solomon's kingdom. What do those uh, discoveries say about the kingdom of, of Judah from the 10th century or Israel from the 10th century?
1: Well, it really points to the, the wealth and prosperity of the individual people. And this is something repeatedly emphasized in the Bible, uh, that, that, um, that kings, it's talked about in the, uh, in the Torah, that kings should be careful not to, not to have their heart lifted up above their brethren by accruing to themselves gold or riches. Mm-hmm. So it really shows that the population, not just the monarch, was richly endowed in this way. And the fact that such a community could be allowed to exist, such wealth could be allowed to be had, and such de- economic development in such a remote area really shows uh, a, a system probably more like America today, mm-hmm. more of a capitalist kind of system, a system that doesn't really vaunt the president as some kind of great demigod-like figure, but it allows communities and individuals to develop and run their own operations. And it's under this kind of environment, not command economies, Mm -hmm. which is what we see in uh, communist-type societies, what we see in ancient empires like Egypt, uh, what's known as a command economy, uh, coercion for, for labor and for produce. Really, you see things drop off. A- and a- under those types of economies, you see production drop off. You see uh, people become more kind of s- secluded and sheltered and less likely to show their wealth. Mm-hmm. And that's what we see in the 12th century BCE at Timna. That's what we see more in the 9th century at Timna under these periods of Egyptian rule, but yet somehow that's all cast to to the side in the 10th century, and you start to see this evidence of a more individualistic, more rich and wealthy type society here at Timna. And again, Timna is just one case in point. There's another mine at Fainan, the Fainan mine, um, where more evidence is coming that's pointing to the same thing from the 10th century, and like we talked about from other areas of Israel. More and more evidence like this, but yet a lack of monumentalism. So this is something that that Professor Ben Yosef has been writing about a lot recently, trying to square this. Okay, it's not like these other kingdoms, Mm -hmm. but we can see there's some kind of wealthy... Uh, hierarchy here some kind of wealthy government and population and economy happening here a really healthy kind of environment compared to under these other uh, empires so what could be responsible for that what could be causing that and so that's really prompted him and several articles that that he's recently come out with to really relook at the way we understand monumentalism and the The focus, we tend to put too much on massive stone structures.
0: If we're going to be judging from this period in particular as well.
1: Right, right, especially the stone structures. And we do have evidence of significant stone structures, but we don't have the same kind of uh, over-the-top, ostentatious type worship of leaders like in like in these more despotic states in Egypt and Mesopotamia and in uh, in ancient China, that type thing.
0: Well, I think people can go ahead and and, uh, I think this article should be online maybe in a week or so, and so they can read through it themselves and and make up their own mind based on the evidence you present and and the most plausible uh, reconstruction of what happened there in Timna based on what they found, and then also putting it alongside the biblical text as well. I think that that's... The type of thing that we're going to be doing a lot of at uh, Let the Stone Speak, and you know this is something that is a, is a kind of a maligned uh, modus operandi in the archaeological field in many ways today. Uh, I even was reading through an article and a, and a journal piece just today of those uh, from my colleagues of, of of Ben Yosef's that are kind of dismissing some of his his. Uh, what he's written about what happened in Timnah, and so he's even facing the fire in many ways uh, for going out and basically saying, you know, we do have this amazing construction, well, amazing, uh, let's say amazing evidence of sophisticated society at this far-off region. It dates to King Solomon's time. That's the historical source, and so what happened here? What's the most logical um, reconstruction of that history? And without the Bible, you are, you are going to guess, and I, I'm not going to get into this uh, other journal piece. Perhaps there'll be time for that. Um, but a lot of people would just dismiss dismiss his evidence, dismiss his evidence from the 10th century and putting it with the historical source, basically saying it was continued Egyptian dominate, uh, probably a bit of a, a continued Egyptian domination without the evidence of that, um, which is just it's. It reminds me a lot of what Yosef, uh, 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 Professor Garfinkel faced after his discovery of. Of kibbeh Kayafa, he wasn't looking for it. Dead to the 10th century, it's Judean. And then, like the barrage of the barrage of of journal articles come out saying, "No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. Can't be Judean." I think Ben Yosef is, is kind of putting himself in some ways in, in the lining in the line of fire. But good for him. Good for him sticking to it, sticking to his guns in this. And again, if you want a <clears throat> let's say a a a a piece that dabbles in in Timna and then lo- looks at more of the 10th century's evidence for. Um, uh, what the Bible describes as a society under the reigns of Solomon. Your article is a wonderful place to go. So we'll leave a link for that in the show notes. And hopefully if you click on that in the next day or two, it should be live on our new website. So thanks very much, Chris, for sharing that with us.
1: Thank you very much, Brent.